insurance companies are using ETFs more than ever before, and that's our topic today. Thanks for joining us. My name is Stuart Foley. I'm your host of the InsuranceAUM.com podcast, and I'm joined by Ben Wollishan and Brad Kotler of State Street Global Advisors. Gentlemen, welcome. Thank you, Stuart. So we'll start this one like we start them all. What's your hometown? First job? Fun fact. Ben, I know you better. How about starting us off? Okay, sure. So uh, hometown, born and raised in Chicago, Illinois, and uh, live in uh, New Jersey at the moment. And um, in terms of fun fact, I've traveled to over 40 countries in my life and uh, about half of those uh, professionally as well. And remind me of the third one. First job. Not your your fancy one. Not a fancy first job. Your first job, like the first one. I worked at... uh, Poochie's hot dog stand in Skokie, Illinois. When you I was worked in, high in Poochie's? Oh, that place is awesome. Very nice. Well done. Okay. How about you, Brad? What's your hometown, first job, and fun fact? So I grew up in, in Rockland County, New York, which is about 20 to 25 miles north of Manhattan. I currently live in Fairfield County, Connecticut. My first job was collecting shopping carts at a Bradley's in a strip mall down by me. I think I was like 13 or 14. Nice work. A fun fact is I have two children, two daughters. Very nice. Thank you. So professionally speaking, Brad, you're a vice president of the Spider Group. You focus on sales execution and trading. And Ben, you run the Spider effort in the insurance area. Can you talk just a little bit about your professional backgrounds, both of you? Sure, I'll start off. So I, I uh, entered the securities industry in the, um, well, let's call it a while ago. <laughs> my, first role, uh, my first role was working with teachers in the 403B space. And then I started working in the mutual fund business, mostly on the retail side, but started developing an expertise in the insurance uh, space through the annuity market. And then um, started working internationally as well, hence the, uh, the 40 countries in both the mutual fund and insurance space, and then had a variety of roles in product development, distribution at uh, both insurance companies, asset managers, as well as on the investment banking side. And I entered the ETF industry uh, just about 10 years ago, uh, working uh, exclusively uh, with insurance companies. And Brad, you have a client-facing role on the, on, on the uh, sales and trading side, right? That's correct. So My current role is client-facing, as you mentioned, and the conversations I'm having with our clients, and that ranges everywhere from the institutional side down to the private and independent wealth side, is discussions and education around the ETF structure, around kind of helping clients find the appropriate product for the exposure and liquidity demands that they have, and then kind of helping them understand the best way to access the market. So developing trade strategies based on their best execution needs and really getting them comfortable with the use case that they are using the ETF for and helping them understand that the liquidity that the product offers is appropriate for their use. And it's really an important point because as you, I think, would both agree, insurance companies don't buy things they don't understand, right? And it's imperative that they understand the structure of the ETF and how it's put together and how it comes apart and all that sort of stuff. And that's what we want to talk about today. And I'll direct this one to Ben. What is an ETF at a high level? 
At a very high level, an ETF is a pooled investment uh, security that operates very much like a mutual fund. Typically, an ETF tracks an index, a sector, or a commodity. But unlike a mutual fund, an ETF can be bought or sold on an exchange. And an ETF can be structured really to track anything from an individual commodity, as I mentioned, to a large and diverse collection of securities. I should also mention that ETFs can be passive, just tracking an index basically, or it could be active as well. And so as I mentioned, an ETF is a basket of securities that trades on exchange. The ETF share price share prices fluctuate uh, all day as the ETF is both bought and sold, which is different than a mutual fund, which strikes an NAV uh, every day after the close. And then ETFs can really, I like to say they can really um, allow an investor to invest in any vertical or horizontal slice of any market you can think of in the world. And then at the same time, ETFs, even though uh, everything underneath them is sophisticated and we have portfolio managers, just like any active strategy or any other investment strategy, we do offer uh, very low expense ratios for most of, um, uh, for most of the uh, vehicles that we have. And then there's fewer kind of what I would call friction in terms of commissions and things of that nature. But at its base level, I really view an ETF as a technology that allows investors, uh, and in this instance, professional investors and insurance companies to access portions of markets where they either want to express a view or that they need uh, to help match their assets and in liabilities. But investors can range from the most sophisticated uh, insurance CIOs to retail customers. And then I would be remiss if I didn't mention that SSGA did create the first ETF, SPY, which many people have heard of. But in the ETF ecosystem, there's over 3,000 ETFs in the U.S. really representing uh, trillions of uh, dollars in assets under management. So it's grown up over a long period of time, but but growing uh, very, very rapidly. And and we can get into adoption a little bit later in the insurance space, but uh, definitely um, uh, become a very key tool for professional investors in the way that they manage money. And you use the term, Ben, ecosystem, right? So, and I'll just direct this to Brad. Can you talk a little bit about the ETF ecosystem, how these things get put together, taken apart, and how they trade? Sure. So an ETF and what makes it so unique and where a lot of the the beneficial attributes come as far as investing goes is the creation redemption mechanism. And so if you think about compared to kind of a closed-end mutual fund, ETF shares, for the most part, can, can be created if there is buy-side demand and redeemed if there is sell-side demand to keep the appropriate amount of shares outstanding for clients. So, you know, just because there is a very large buyer of, you know, you can, you can talk about T-bills or, or investment-grade credit, you know, those are very large markets where there's underlying constituents that are available to be brought into ETFs in a diversified manner. So authorized participants, which issuers like State Street partner with, are constantly creating and redeeming shares based on buyers and sellers in the market so that there isn't significant market impact or demand and supply imbalances for investors that are looking to invest or divest. So that certainly is very appropriate in a very important way that the, the price of the ETF remains in line with the price of the underlying securities. So if your APs and market makers providing liquidity, 
and you have investors demanding that liquidity. And you also have a lot of different use cases that within you know, using an ETF that offer kind of enhanced liquidity. So you have this whole securities lending market. So investors can borrow shares for whatever purposes they need. You have the ability for investors to use total return swaps on ETFs, where ETFs would be the hedge for that total return swap for specific use cases and investor types that want, want the derivative format. You know, there's, there's investors that use ETFs to embed into other products. And this is typically used by, you know, that's a use case used by the banks. So there's a lot of different investor types. Of course, you have your core kind of buy and hold. You have your more tactical trading counterparties. And then you have ETFs as a financial instrument, we call it, where use cases for the ETF that aren't necessarily buy and hold, but hedging and for derivative use. So all of this use kind of creates this turnover of product and enhances the liquidity because so many people are using the ETF for different reasons at once. And that we typically see as increasing volumes available and collapsing bid-ask spread in the ETF. And that's a big driver of why we often see ETFs bid-ask trading tighter than the underlying basket. Yeah, and that's what I was going to ask you is, is there a way to compare the liquidity of an ETF to the underlying basket? Are there generalities that you can state about? Because liquidity is a topic that insurance companies care about a lot. And so could you just kind of address the liquidity side of things just for a moment? Yeah, absolutely. So if you think about a brand new ETF, has no holders and it's just been launched and you can use any asset class that you want. For an investor looking to buy that ETF, there isn't going to be really a lot of secondary market liquidity available, right? There's not someone selling shares that you can buy from them where you pair off at the exchange and collapse a bid-esque spread. So a new investor is going to access the market at the spreads of the basket, right? So that's kind of how it starts. And then once you have, you've built up a holder base and there are many different investors, you know, buying or selling that ETF at all at once, but for different reasons, kind of what I mentioned before, then you start to see the bid-esque spread collapse because someone's willing to sell an ETF at a price where you're looking to buy it, then you don't have to worry about what's happening with the bid-ask spread and the constituents of the basket, right? There's no, the implication is they're not, there isn't necessarily going to be new shares created or redeemed. It's just two investors meeting in an all-to-all market that can trade inside the spread of the basket. So that's really important. And that's why a lot of times people say an ETF's liquidity and bid-ask spread should be at worst case, the bid-ask spread of the basket. But in, in most cases for these you know, developed products that have a strong liquidity profile, we see spreads significantly inside. You know, and you can think about the high yield market and you could say, well, high yield trades at, let's say, 50 basis points wide for, for the conversation purposes. A lot of the most robust high yield ETFs trade a basis point wide. And that's because there are sellers and buyers transacting at the same time and we don't necessarily have to care about where the, the, the holdings are and, and the cost to source those holdings because you're just buying what somebody else is selling and you're, you're agreeing at a point of centralized liquidity, which is the exchange. And so you know, we see remarkable upticks in reduction of transaction costs. That is one of the benefits of the structure and why clients tend to like ETFs over mutual funds. 
Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I guess the other side of it, Ben, is to talk about insurance company use of ETFs. Our our mutual friend Raghuvar Mishandran at S&P has written a paper every year on the use of insurance companies, use of ETFs, and the numbers keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And there's a lot of very solid reasons for that. But what can you talk to us about with regard to insurance company usage of ETFs in particular? Yeah, and so so there's there's a lot of them, and and so and this is why I mentioned at the outset that we really do view the ETF. It's it's an investment vehicle, obviously, but it also also is sort of a a technology, and and that investment technology can be used by insurance companies for a lot of different things. So we see uh, insurance companies using uh, the ETF as a long term core holding. It could be in a commodity product. It could be an equity product. It's mostly fixed income, uh, however, just given the nature of, of the insurance company asset and liability profile. It could also be used as interim beta. You know, so let's say an insurance company uh, ha- is having a difficult time sourcing securities from their traditional sources, like an investment bank or a broker dealer. They can go into a core holding, say high yield type holding um, products such as JNK. Uh, for a period of time until which they can source uh, the securities. And then at that point, uh, they may decide uh, to hold on to the ETF long-term if they either can't source it at an appropriate price or just, you know, like the individual holding that they've bought from an ETF perspective. Another interesting use case is scale in a subsidiary account. As we know in the insurance um, world, Insurance companies, especially large ones, have entities all over the United States, uh, all over the world in some cases. And so they might, you know, a very large uh, mega insurance company might have a small subsidiary. And, you know, it's difficult to replicate parent portfolio in in a much smaller subsidiary. So rather than trying to replicate, say, a thousand line items in a small subsidiary account, you can build a portfolio using five to 10, maybe even in some cases, depending what you're looking for, with one, one to two ETFs, which is a really interesting use case. Another use case is uh, sourcing hard to access um, asset classes, such as emerging market debt. And we've seen lots of insurance companies who might not have an EM desk using the ETF as, uh, as a way to access uh, that market. The other thing I wanted to mention, uh, which two things actually that Brad mentioned that I wanted to expand on a little bit, is the in-kind uh, creation, uh, the creation and redemption um, process. There's a tool within that that's in-kind, so you can source securities. An ETF is really a wrapper, and you can actually crack that wrapper open, and in some cases take delivery of the underlying securities. And so, as I mentioned, there may be some hard-to-source securities that an insurance company wants to own on their balance sheet or express a view to the extent they can't source it, again, through traditional sources, they can use the ETF mechanism to do so. And the same thing actually works in reverse as well. So let's say an insurance company has a separate account or they, they own a whole number of, of securities that you know perhaps they can't get a mark on, they can call us, Brad um, and, and his team, and we can see if those individual securities match up with a particular ETF. And if they do, if they do so, working through an AP, this is not something uh, that's done directly through the ETF issuer, but working through an AP, it can actually deliver those securities to the AP and then take delivery of the ETF. And instead of having multiple line items, again, 
they can have one line item in the form of the ETF. And the last thing I'll mention, um, which is becoming very popular in the insurance space, especially with large, very liquid uh, ETFs, I mentioned ETFs uh, as, a, as a technology. They're also a financial instrument. So we're seeing a lot of insurance companies uh, nowadays buying the ETF, going long on the ETF, and then lending uh, the ETF out uh, to generate additional revenue uh, for the balance sheet. And so, you know, if, there, if, if there's a lending market, which in, in these volatile times, there certainly is, because there's always someone who wants to express a view, you know, especially on our most liquid tickers. And I would say throughout any ETF issuer, their most liquid tickers, there's likely a lending market that can create a situation where the insurance company employs a long and lend strategy as well, uh, which is very interesting, again, because it gives, even though yields are higher, uh, to say the least, um, it does give additional income uh, to the insurance company balance sheet. So those are just a few examples. Yeah, I've heard the term AP a couple of different times, and I want to make sure that I'm that we're defining that. When you use the term AP, what do those letters mean? I'll defer to uh, to Brad on that one, but it's it's authorized participant, and and we work with many of them, but that's that's Brad's world. Sure. Um, so just as Ben said, authorized participant. These are counterparties who are legally allowed to create or redeem shares, which means deliver a an appropriate basket of securities to an ETF fund in exchange for new ETF shares or deliver shares in for redemption and receive an underlying basket of securities. So it's an agreement that is kind of built between often broker dealers who legally sign up to become authorized participants in certain types of ETFs. And they're allowed to kind of participate in those transactions facing the ETF fund. When I do these podcasts, I kind of put myself in the seat of a CIO, right? And I say, well, if I want to buy ETFs in a meaningful way, and we talked about some use cases, but I mean, if you're a $100 million insurance company and you want to make an EMD allocation, you know, how do you do it? And obviously ETFs is a, is a very efficient and effective way to do that. But if I want to understand this market a little bit better, can a client work with the Spider Capital Markets team, i.e. you, Brad, like, how do I do that? Sure. So often we work with the full sales force of the ETF issuer. So that's that, that accurately describes the relationship between Ben and I and all of our other salespeople. And so, you know, along the investment process from the research to the desired exposure, the selection of that, and then vetting out all the different ETFs for kind of finding the most ideal exposure based on the index. So that's due diligence. Once we get to implementation, oftentimes the salesperson will put me in touch with the PM and trading team at the investor. And we'll talk about a lot of things from what are their best execution requirements, who's going to be trading, actually executing the orders, what are the priorities for the order. So are you looking to trade the risk all at once? Are you looking to take advantage of the ETF structure and do kind of a working order in the market? Are you looking to benchmark yourself to some trading value like a NAV or a TWAP or, you know, the high or low of the day? I mean, of course, there are multiple benchmarks you can, you can use. And we'll develop a trade strategy using those things. So like I'll bucket those as client priorities. And then you have to take a look at the ETF itself 
and the secondary market profile of the ETF. And lastly, understand what you know what the liquidity profile of the underlying securities are, and then and, and the trade size really is the last part. And you develop a strategy that optimizes all of that. And so, if you're looking to minimize market impact for an ETF that doesn't trade very much but has a pretty deep pool of liquidity in the underlying, then perhaps you use a block trade. If you want to minimize market impact and take advantage of what you perceive as somebody selling in the market while you want to buy, perhaps you do a VWAP over a certain time period when the underlying securities are most active. You know, so if you look at fixed income, a lot of fixed income, we can speak about credit trades between you know, 9.30 and noon. And so we can kind of just really seek to optimize what the client needs and what's available out there from the ETF and its underlying. So we work a lot with doing that and building strategy and, and you know, TCA. Okay, so TWAP, VWAP, and TCA, help me with those. Sure. So TWAP is time-weighted average price. So that's an order type where you're just saying, you know, buy a thousand shares every minute for the next half hour. So you're not taking into account anything other than buying the same amount of shares over a predetermined range of time. A VWAP volume-weighted average price is you're buying shares, but you are participating in the market, meaning if nobody else is trading shares while you are, your volume will be a little bit lower. And then as the, the broader market for that ticker starts to increase volume, you will also, in your order, will start to buy or sell more. So you're going along with the pace of the market. And that's often a, a strategy used and widely used to minimize market impact. TCA is, just, is trade cost analysis. So that's a little bit different. That's not an order type like the other two, but that's just kind of a general term for what we do, which is helping clients understand what it might cost to trade a certain ticker of an ETF at a certain time of day using a certain order type. And so you could say, you know, buying this ETF XYZ over, you know, two hours might cost eight basis points. I'm making numbers up, but just an ex as an example. So you have eight basis points of impact, maybe versus arrival. So, you know, but you look at the price before you start your order, you can call it, you know, $55. You look at the price afterwards, $55.04. So that's something like, you know, eight, eight and a half basis points of impact. And so that's your TCA, just giving clients a ballpark for how much they may move the market with a certain order in a certain ETF traded with a certain order type. That's really helpful. I love doing podcasts because I learn a lot. I get to talk to smart guys like you two, and uh, it's, it's terrific. So I think no insurance investment discussion is ever complete without a regulatory comment, right? So Ben, can you talk a little bit about the regulatory treatment of ETFs for insurance companies? Sure, and you're absolutely right. So we can have all the, um, as an industry, have all the interesting exposures in the world, but if, if capital treatment um, is, uh, is punitive, you know, that makes uh, that exposure less, obviously less, less attractive to, um, to the insurance company. So, you know, without an NAIC designation, the ETF, even if it's a, a core investment grade fixed income product, would be treated as an equity because these are traded on exchange like equities. However, since 2004, so quite a while, uh, the National Association of Insurance Commissioners has provided designations uh, for nowadays uh, over close to our over 200 ETFs with designations um, for, uh, for favorable capital treatment, depending what the underlying exposure is. So 
like I said, there's over 200, including uh, preferred uh, stock products as well. Of course, each uh, insurance company is regulated by their state of domicile. So ultimately, even though the NAIC provides designations and, and as an industry, this isn't a, a spider thing, as an industry, we work closely with our insurance company clients to gain those designations. I should mention we have uh, 29 products that have, have uh, NAIC designations. Of those 200, we work closely with the insurance companies and at the same time, we work closely with the state regulators as well. And so um, I'll get into the state part in a moment, but just on a high level, the NAIC designation helps the insurers grant a more favorable RBC treatment. As I mentioned, without an NAIC designation, the bond ETF would be considered a common stock. And uh, with the NAIC designation, the bond ETF can be classified as a, lo- as a long-term bond issuer obligation on um, Schedule D filings. So you mentioned earlier uh, the studies that S&P and Ragu put out. Part of that high growth trajectory is due to the fact that we have these designations. We also, uh, as an industry, along with the NAIC, uh, have worked to allow for ETFs to gain favorable accounting treatment uh, through the election of systematic value uh, valuation. And of course, we don't, um, you know, we don't opine on individual uh, accounting treatment. Um, but we do have um, white papers and guides to help the insurance company through that process. So like Brad, from a capital markets perspective, from a regulatory perspective, we also work closely with the insurance companies uh, to help them understand um, that treatment. But ultimately, it's up you know, between them, their accounting teams, and, and how the state views the ETF. And on that note, with the state, as I mentioned, each individual state, they may or may not provide guidance uh, to the insurance companies. And so, um, so for example, uh, New York, just about a year ago, had provided very, very clear guidance to New York domiciled insurance companies with several uh, guidelines for an ETF specifically to be allowed to be held on, ins- on an insurance company balance sheet for a New York domiciled insurance company. And so, this high level, uh, the ETF must be over a billion dollars. Uh, it must allow for in-kind creation and redemption. So now that we're all experts on that, we know what that means. It must be follow a passive uh, index. It must follow the 1940 Act. And uh, interestingly, and this, this could provide for a longer discussion for another podcast. Interestingly, the New York Department of Financial Services mandated that the ETF must also have uh, a rating from a NRSRO, another acronym, Nationally Statistically Recognized Rating Organization, on top of, um, you know, on top of the NAIC designation, which is also a requirement. New York really wants the ETF to look like a bond. And so adoption, New York specifically, not to go too far on that tangent, has been really uh, quite strong. And then I should also mention that there are some states, there's pending um, legislation or regulation or guidance, depending on how you look at it, in states such as Massachusetts, Iowa, and some others that have already opined, like Texas and Wyoming, but many states stay silent. So they, they don't say allow or disallow, they just defer to the NAIC. And then it's really up to the insurance company to work closely with their in-house compliance uh, team 
regulatory and accounting uh, to make sure that it fits that it fits well uh, from a, a balance sheet risk and regulatory profile. That's really interesting. I, I, it's very helpful to get current. I mean, the state level regulatory treatment is key to these folks, the insurance guys, they need to know how that's going to be treated. So it's it's interesting to get that level of specificity around that guidance. So at the end of the day, the trend is clearly up on ETF use by insurance companies. It seems as though, I mean, with the number of, of NAIC designations that are out there, your number, I think, was 200 or so. Obviously, adoption is becoming very mainstream. Just to kind of wrap it up, what's a couple of takeaways as you look forward here at ETF use by insurance companies? Yeah, so I, you know, I think there's, you know, really kind of three three main ones. Uh, the first one, um, really piggybacking on, on on Brad's discussion, is that you know ETF is ex- it stands for exchange traded fund. You know, the T is traded, and you know that's that's probably the most important part of how clients transact. It's the only part, how they transact in these securities. So working with an ETF issuer that has a robust capital markets and client experience team uh, is really critical. So, you know, there may be 200 uh, products with NAIC designations, but really kind of understanding and working closely uh, with an issuer uh, in that ecosystem is super important. And so, you know, that can range from just direct contact or Bloomberg chats, for example, are employed pretty extensively uh, and also really getting a handle on, you know, what I like to call pre-trade uh, analytics and post-trade analytics to really understand, as Brad was mentioning, um, all the dynamics that go into working with the ETF. The second thing I would say is that even though um, last year in 2021, about a billion and a half US dollars were added, to general account portfolios, that sounds relatively small, you know, in terms of overall insurance assets, it's actually growing at a, at a really rapid rate. And so in terms of holdings, that's about, four, it's about 45 billion and growing um, quite rapidly and, um, you know, in, in double digit growth over time. But I would say to, to the insurance company audience, you know, there's not one particular asset class that I would suggest that makes makes sense. I would say all of them. So if you're, you know, if you're looking for core fixed income, as I mentioned before, there's an ETF for that. If you're looking for interim beta, you can look at the ETF ecosystem, I'll say, to find what makes sense for you. Uh, many insurers obviously uh, also have equity books. You know, if you're if you're concerned that you know your individual equity products are are benchmark hugging. Why not buy the benchmark and look at uh, ETF portfolio? If you're concerned that you have too many line items, again, you know, an ETF or small portfolio of ETFs can help out with that. And then lastly, um, kind of going back to the first point, I would say that, um, that even though we're growing really rapidly in the space, it's still a relatively small fraction. And in working closely with your issuer, is really paramount and you know we're here as an industry to really kind of help out and and that ranges all the way from the capital markets um, piece uh, to the regulatory piece and so we um, don't view any questions as bad questions uh, we like getting the questions and so I would say just work um, you know work closely with with your issuers um, and uh, you know get get to know uh, the ecosystem because 
you know, as balance sheets have cr- contracted on Wall Street, these products have taken on a new significance. And, and again, subject for another podcast, but, you know, look no further than, um, you know, the Fed's buying program back in 2020 is really an endorsement as these um, instruments, instruments being ETFs, as a, fi- a financial tool, again, or as a technology that can really help out institutional investors um, manage their um, balance sheets, specifically insurance companies. Thank you. I really appreciate it. I've learned a lot today. I learned a, a bunch of new terms. I feel like I understand this market much better than I did at the beginning of this thing. So thanks for being on. We've been joined by Ben Wallishin, head of Spider Insurance, and Brad Kotler, vice president of the Spider Group Sales, Execution, and Trading from State Street Global Advisors. Gentlemen, thanks for being on. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Stuart. Thanks for listening. If you have ideas for podcasts, please email me at podcast at insuranceaum.com. My name is Stuart Foley, and this is the insuranceaum.com podcast.